Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this is our ever more regular roundup of our monthly activity on the blog site. And today we're going to be talking about June. We've hit July. There's Wimbledon is on. The Cricket World Cup is going. The sun is shining. All is well with the world. Emergency departments have had their break from winter. And we're back into it now. But let's talk June. Simon, you've had an exciting June, I think. Don't forget the bubbles was on. Yeah, great conference, actually, from our friends, don't forget the bubbles, who I suppose they do a similar thing to St. Emlyn's, but are going to be better, uh, around the world of paediatric emergency medicine and paediatrics in general. If you haven't been to their site, then do check them out. They are superb. But they're also putting on a conference. I think this was conference number three in London. The previous two have been in Australia. It's really good, actually. Brought together a lot of people from around the world, great speakers, great ideas, and just generally a lot of fun to meet up with people again. Learned a lot, actually. I think it's really important for those of us who do mainly adult medicine to try and stay in touch because with, I don't know what it's like for most people, but at my shop, I shouldn't call them shops, that's a Scott Weingart word, isn't it? But at my place of work, the paediatricians are taking over a lot of the paediatric emergency department, paediatric emergency physicians, I should say. And so to keep in touch with looking after children, I feel I need to do more now than just look after my own. So going to a conference like that must be hugely empowering. And I know you do lots of peds with your place, Simon, but it must help adult emergency physicians like me keep in touch. I think one of the things I've always said is, I mean, I do about 40% of my work in a paediatric emergency medicine department, which is geographically separate to adults, which means you're seeing the kids all the time and you're seeing the well ones and not so well ones, the moderate ones. It's really good. I think there's a huge amount of crossover between what we can learn from paediatric emergency medicine and adult medicine and vice versa. I think the crossover is very helpful. And I've always been an advocate of having at least some of your population of, of staff who work in both. I think it's healthy. Really healthy. And also when you're moving around, because we can change places of work these days, there are places that see both. So if you work in a place like mine, which is adults and children are separate or yours, Simon, if we want to remain a valuable commodity, we need to maintain that broad section of skills as emergency physicians. It's also one of our main criteria, isn't it? We can do everything or at least try and do most things. So don't forget the bubble sounds like a real success. And I think next year it's in Australia for people who fancy a trip across the other side of the world. Yep, I think it's over in Brisbane, um, which should be good fun. And uh, I can't make it next year, but um, I think there'll be quite a few people going over from the UK. Simon, have you got any particular highlights you can share from the Don't Forget the Bubbles conference? Maybe things that you learned? I think you did a talk as well. Um, I did. I did a talk on the paradox of a good day in emergency medicine. And there's a blog post which will come out soon. I kind of meant to put it out in June, but I forgot. Um, And the paradox of a good day in emergency medicine is that sort of feeling which... You go home at the end of the day and somebody says, what did you do today? You say, oh, I did a thoracotomy. It was amazing. Or the the standby phone might go and everybody crowds around the standby phone and they want to hear what it is. And they hear, oh, it's a trauma. Oh, it sounds exciting. As a 20-year-old, cool. They've been stabbed several times. Amazing. Might get to do a chest drain. Might to put an intraosseous in. Might not get to do loads of stuff. And yet, that's almost certainly the worst day of that patient's life, the family's life, and possibly even the last day of their life. And there's this weird paradox that what the patient is experiencing, their family, is dreadful and awful. And yet it's what we look forward to. And that's a bit weird. What we do in the everyday is the extraordinary for others, isn't it? And I think I've become more and more aware of that over time, that idea of getting excited. Oh, what do you want today? Oh, I'm hoping for a really good trauma. I have moved away from that now, I guess, because the more senior you get, the more you have to talk to the relatives and the more you have to communicate what's been going on. And that has balanced the other bits for me. And I think there probably is a point in time where you've done enough of that stuff. I know I have a colleague who did a lot of HEMS, who is now working with, still does HEMS, but after two years doing solid HEMS, he said, I just couldn't handle any more decapitations. 
I just couldn't see anymore and needed a break from it all. There's only so much of that you can take, but there is a point in your career where that is exciting. There is. And I actually struggled with this for some time until I ended up speaking to a psychologist, not professionally, it's got to be said. And they had, a, I thought they were going to tell us that we all had some sort of weird group psychological dysfunction and that we were all strange people or that we'd been turned into weirdos by the work that we do. And uh, she came back to me with a very different perspective, actually. What she said is, do you know what? As a non-medic, I think it's fantastic that there are people out there who were really interested in doing what you what you guys do. Because if I'm injured or my family is injured, I want somebody there who's trained, enthusiastic, keen, able, all of those things. And I don't want somebody who is psychologically got a huge number of barriers to do some of the very invasive and destructive and actually quite mutilating things that we do. For instance, if you've ever done a thoracotomy, you will know, and I know you have and I know I have, that it's a brutal, horrible, difficult, ugly, painful, distressing procedure. And yeah, it's great to train for it. It's great to look forward to it. But actually, the reality is very different. And I, I think your point about changing over the years is also is also very true, actually. I think I feel the same. It's interesting what we find interesting in emergency medicine, isn't it? I've always been intrigued by the puzzle solving rather than the practical. Never quite understood the obsession with putting a piece of plastic in someone's throat and that being the be-all and end-all of what emergency medicine is about. It's about the puzzle solving. And if I can just do a little promo for another podcast, the Arkem Learning podcast, which comes out every month and is excellent, uh, not just because I'm on it this month, but I talk a bit about that, about my Belfast talk, about how we want to solve puzzles, how I like detective novels, how it's about trying to find out what's going on. And for me, that's where I've transitioned to now. So less about the practical and more about the thoughtful, I think. But there's a combination of the two, isn't there, that is part of our job. You're trying to tell me that you're not mentioning the Arkham podcast this month just because you happen to be on it. It is jolly good. I mean, the whole thing. It is really is good, very good. But that's just an entire coincidence. Let's just put that on the table. Absolutely. Can I mention another couple of talks from Don't Forget the Bubbles, which um, made me really think. Um, Kim Holt, who is involved in whistleblowing around the Baby P case, a very famous child protection case in the UK, and her description of her journey through criticism, complaints, uh, problems with employers, and all that kind of stuff was really awful, but very, very powerful. And when you meet people like that who've really stood up for what's right, I, I often feel in awe of these people. I'm not sure I'm as strong as they are. Um, so I thought that was excellent. Um, definitely when that comes out, it's worth a listen. And there was a really um, interesting talk from Liz Stoker, who's a professor of communication type things um, in the Midlands somewhere, who was talking about how we use language and things like subtle pauses and, and the way that language comes across. Really interesting analysis of how people speak and what you can pull out of that. And what appealed to me there was this idea that there are things which are happening in language, which we can't necessarily quantify without really technical analysis, but which your ear and your mind is probably picking up. And that's kind of the gestalt thing about you, you kind of know this is not right, but or it is right, but you can't tell why. So she did a really interesting thing um, on that. That's definitely worth a listen. There was also some really good talks around adolescence. And again, this is a little bit of a hobby horse of mine in that we have this idea that we have adult medicine and then we have pediatric medicine. And pediatric medicine is all uh, teddy bears, Peppa Pig, TV shows, cartoons and all that kind of stuff. But the bit in the middle, the adolescents, are often not terribly well catered for. For example, we put some stuff up in our um, PED department about uh, sexual health and we put it up at a sort of the level that teenagers would be able to see. So it wasn't at ground level, if you like. 
But there were objections from some people that we shouldn't have that in a paediatric emergency department. And yet we're dealing with children who go up to the age of 16, who often bring their older brothers and sisters with them. Why shouldn't we be addressing the needs and the requirements of adolescent health in the same way they do kids? And Russell Viner, who I think is head of uh, the RCPCH now, did a brilliant talk about how adolescents are different and how adolescence is changing. He gave a really nice historical one that in the old days, so when my parents were around, and I think my parents had me when I was, when they were 20, adolescence sort of started at puberty and ended when you had your first child, which it was back then was a very short period of time. Whereas now the social constraints on being free adolescent not tied down, not being forced into what the traditional family model is, is much longer. And therefore, the health needs and the the ideas and how we deal with that group of patients is very different. And I don't think we do it very well at the moment. So that was a really interesting talk. I think being a teenager now is incredibly difficult. Social media doesn't help. The pressure's put upon teenagers now. I know there'll be lots of people listening, oh, in my day, I think being a teenager now is tough. And if they can't find a sympathetic ear in their emergency department who understands or at least tries to understand, then where can they go? So it's important that we try and understand. And whether you're a parent or not, you still need to know this stuff. And my parenting experience is very different to many other parents' experience. So I need to try and get to learn what it's like to be a teenager for all of those different people to try and help as best I can. Okay, I could go on for Don't Forget the Bubbles for ages, but I'm just going to mention two more just before we go on. I, I could mention loads more. Sorry if I've forgotten you, um, but it'll all come up on the DFTB blog. There was a great session on uh, doctors in distress. There were two people in that, Dan Magnus, who I think is from Derby, and Neil Spensley, who's a PICU consultant from Scotland. They both did talks on basically trying to build better systems. Dan was focusing on how do you build a department which actually supports people. And what was great about that talk is he had some real practical things to do. So things like welcome packs and stuff like that, but not getting away from the fact that it's not about making people more resilient. It's about making the system better. I thought that was a really important message because, you know, all this stuff about resilience, you're not tough enough, you need to toughen up, is wrong. We need to make the system better so we don't have to have really insanely madly tough people. And then Neil Spensley talked about our response to when things go wrong and the fact that at the moment, the systems are very much skewed to blaming individuals, whereas again, what we need to look at is why the system has gone wrong. And it goes back to that classic thing, you know, not why did you make a terrible mistake, but why did this mistake, which turned out to be terrible, appear to be the right decision at the time? Both great speakers, actually. So if you do get the chance to hear them at a different conference in the future, and I think I'm going to try and attract them into the uh, RCHEM program, do have a listen to those guys. They're really good. So lots to learn from Don't Forget the Bubbles. And it sounds like it transitioned across from just being about paediatric practice to all sorts of things we could learn in emergency medicine as a whole. So highly recommended. And if you fancy a trip to Brisbane, then do seek that out. It's that time of year now where you're looking ahead to plan your study leave, plan your travel, see if that's one that you can fit in, maybe save up for that and get across to there. They're a good bunch of guys. They've come a long way in a very short period of time and uh, all power to their arm, really. So Simon, on to our blog posts for June. Not a huge number, but uh, some high quality stuff. Some of it going from the St. Emlyn's Live conference. So coming back to what we did last year at the end of last year, the first one was Alan Grayson talking about ATLS and how we can go beyond that. And that's a talk that I think is well worth watching. What were the things you particularly wanted to bring out from Alan's talk there? I think when we set him up on that talk, the idea was that he was going to go beyond ATLS and talk about new ideas in trauma. And that sort of morphed over time because 
there's too many talks about Reboa, quite frankly. And what Alan took is the idea that ATLS isn't all bad. I mean, it gets a terrible rap out in the world. You know, everybody says ATLS is awful. Actually, it's, it's probably improved trauma care to a huge degree. And if you use it in the way that it was intended for sort of single rescuer, not in a trauma center, not using multi-professional, multidisciplinary teams, it's okay, actually. It's not ridiculous. It's probably not applicable directly to a major trauma center in a, in a Western high-income country. Fair enough. But there's good stuff in there too. But then what he did is he looked at whether or not, before we even start thinking you know, about Reboa and stuff, are we doing what we should be doing? Stuff which is already evidence-based and we know works. So things like tranexamic acid. And actually having a look at some of the data about whether or not we're achieving it. And to be honest, before we start thinking about hugely weird, technical, amazing stuff, we need to do the basics right. And this is something that I've heard Canberra, he talk about, and people at the Royal London, is before you start doing all the really crazy stuff at the cutting edge, get your basics right. And I think that was the big theme that came out of Alan's talk. And, it, and it's very much something we can all take back to our departments. I remember Karim saying at a conference years ago about sweeping the floors. You've got to sweep the floors. Oh, you've got to have everything in place. It's got to be tidy. He meant it metaphorically, but also actually, you know, the bay has to be ready. You have to have the basics in place before you even think about all this other fancy stuff. I think we could do a lot more for that. We could think about basic care in the emergency department, making it good, good analgesia, good timely antibiotics with decent antibiotic choice, all those things. That's what we need to be doing. Robo is all very fancy, but I don't think it's dare I say, going to happen in my career. And I'm hoping I've got 20 years left. So we'll see. We'll see. Well, there's a trial on at the moment. So it may come sooner than you think, or it may not. We don't know. Next was uh, Jason Smith talking about traumatic cardiac arrest. Now, we did cover this last month a little bit. This was the podcast, which is well worth a listen. It does talk about them doing experimental models using pigs and how they responded to different interventions in traumatic cardiac arrest. But it does start to look at that question of what should we be doing in traumatic cardiac arrest? What is good? What is bad? And I think the conclusion really was what a lot of people have suspected, which is give blood. Compressions aren't particularly going to help. Normal saline isn't going to particularly help. Adrenaline isn't going to help. Give blood and try and stop the bleeding. And if or sort out the cause, if that was something like a cardiac tamponade. Yeah. Does that feel a reasonable conclusion to that? It does. But just with that caveat, just make sure that you are looking at this is for hypovolemic cardiac arrest. And there are other causes of cardiac arrest and trauma. So you've got to be careful about what you're doing. Jason explains it really nicely on the podcast. If you are the sort of person who's thinking, I'm going to go into recess tomorrow and not do cardiac compressions, don't do that until you've listened to the podcast. And you've got a good explanation of the, the background behind that from Jason. Next up was Laura Howard, who's a member of the team, talking about her own paper about how we're impacted in emergency medicine and the events we see and how that affects our psychological well-being. Really nice to see what I really call proper science about this topic. You and I have talked before about well-being being more than yoga mats and ice lollies. And this is actually talking about how people feel and what we can do to help them. Laura's done some great work, and I'm so proud that we've got her on the team. She's amazing. Um, I work with her and she's fabulous. This, this study is really interesting, I think. It's done in a qualitative manner. It was done as interviews and then looking through for a thematic analysis. And actually, I was actually one of the respondents in this. And it took a variety of really quite senior emergency physicians and asked them about the impact of the job that we do. Now, within the group of people who are interviewed, and I know them, there's people who from the outside, you think, they're rock hard. They're not touched by this. They're just so on it. They're great. They're just fabulous people. 
what's clear, I've got to say, coming through the data is just how much everybody, full stop, everybody is affected by the events that are that arise around us. You know, you and I have spoken about it in the past, but there are things which no matter how impassionate or how keen you were to do that big trauma case, they will impact on you. So, you know, young or traumatic deaths, you talked about the decapitations before, particularly body disruption, children, um, events that are close to you. So, for instance, if you see a child of a, of a similar age to your own or from the same school or that sort of thing, these things can impact on you quite quite a lot. And oh, as probably people probably know, one of my daughter's friends was murdered this year. And when those things start to come together and you're then seeing children who've been stabbed also, oh gosh, it's not a happy place to be. And that's okay because that's the world that we live in. But this is one of the first times that we've really sort of looked at the depth of that and the effect, the long-term effects, the sleep deprivation, the changes in diet, changes in behavior that can result from the events that we see. I, th I think this is essential reading to anybody working in EM, to be honest. And dare I say, it's probably essential reading for anyone who's involved in management of doctors and nurses working in emergency medicine and anyone probably who's the significant other of somebody who works in emergency medicine. Often we're asked, well, what was work like today? And we go, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes that's because we just don't want to relive what's gone on. And sometimes it's because it was fine. But it, I think to try and communicate what we do, I'm not saying our job is special or different to other people, whether they're doctors or teachers or lawyers or the guy who does the bins or person who works in my local supermarket. We all have different stresses in our jobs and we should not go on about, oh, this is different. But it might help to explain to those who on given days might not quite know why you're behaving the way you are or how to support you in the best way you can. It might be worth them reading this too. And actually open up a conversation with them. So you had a bad day in the classroom. Tell me about it. And it might help just support each other. Because it's clear that the system isn't necessarily going to support us at times at the moment. And the only way we can find that support is through our colleagues and our significant others and our friends. And this may be one way to open up that conversation. Yeah, but as Laura says, we're not terribly good at, at those things. So there are a couple of interesting things in here. So one of the big stresses was conflict with other specialties, which we know is a bad thing at the moment. And the uh, Civility Saves campaign is working on that one. But also that withdrawing from the conversation is a very common theme about how people cope with this. So actually, we're not speaking to friends and colleagues. We're not speaking to our partners because we don't want to burden them with the problems that we have. That seemed to be a common theme amongst the people. And that's what I've seen too. So we're not very good at this. Maybe we're not very good at it on ourselves. Maybe it's something that we should actively seek out and drive with our colleagues. So if we know somebody's had something which is going to likely lead to a traumatic event, so the patient who went home, who then subsequently came back dead, that's going to be an extreme burden on them, even if they weren't to blame. Well, that's the wrong word, but do you know what I mean? Even if there wasn't fault in the person, that's going to affect them. And those people need follow-up conversations and, and contact, not just once, but maybe two or three times over a period of time. And probably worth thinking about again about the podcast with Liz Crow about well-being for the broken. Here we're talking about little bits of broken every day, as opposed to what that discussion was, which was the big event that's really done for you. But that was all about having a plan. Who do you go to? Having a work husband or a work wife you can go and speak to about things. It sounds a bit trite and it's a Twitter hashtag, but it is okay to not be okay. 
We have to support that. And as senior doctors, I think we can promote that now. It's okay. That's okay. And if you find that you're not being supported at work, well, you need to say something about that and find somebody who will support you. And at St. Emelins, we'd always support you because we truly believe that it's okay not to be okay, but we can do some stuff to help. Yeah, some very powerful quotes in here. I, I genuinely think people should read it. The final post from this month was a very simple learning point about IO blood. Now, the courses you describe sometimes as alphabet courses, which I really like the description, the ALSs, the APLSs, have always said that we can use IO blood for analysis and oh, just pop it in a thing and it will be fine. That apparently is not the case. Yeah, so I'm teaching APLS this week and the number of times which I've heard other people, obviously not myself, okay, it was me, say, and when you put the introsthesis in, take some marrow out there and send it to the lab, label it as marrow, and you'll get a full set of results. Well, no, you won't. There'll, a couple of things will happen. One is if you just put marrow through the analyzers, the automatic analyzers these days without telling them, then that's going to end really badly for the machine and for you. And some, I think somebody on Twitter described it as they just they asked their lab manager whether they could do this, and they just went pale and started sweating. So the point is, you can't, from my understanding or what I've been told, put marrow through an automatic analyzer. And this includes your blood gas machine. So if you have a blood gas machine in your department, you'll only put marrow through it once. A bit like you'll only forget your spouse's birthday once. You'll do it once. And then for many reasons, you're not going to do that one again because it will block it up probably. Then there's the question of actually, well, if you analyzed it in different ways, if you if you were able to go through it, what would be the value of the actual results? Well, you could probably use it for microbiology. So that's been suggested. And that, that wasn't actually in this paper, which is a systematic review of the trials comparing IO samples and IV samples. Um, I think it's reasonable to put it in as a microbiology sample. That seems okay. And I think we do that in PEDS quite a lot. But actually testing, you can probably get a hemoglobin. I think you can get a sodium out of it. But in reality, I'd be very reluctant to rely on samples from intraosseous access. In fact, the only study that was done in the type of patients that we see, so critically ill patients in the ED, was done in, and have a guess, have a guess how many patients this was done in? I would say two or 3,000. 17. Ah. So... If you are, <laughs> there's no way I'm going to rest my decision making on a study that was done in 17 people. I'm just not going to do that. So at the moment, I don't think it's reliable. So I'm going this week, I'm not going to be teaching that on the APLS course. So this goes into that box of things that we've been doing or been told that we will now try and tell people that we shouldn't do or we could do differently and they will tell us we can. So things I would include are the comparison between venous and arterial blood gases and whether or not you're allowed to do a CT scan on somebody with less than ideal renal function. So let's stick this one in that box too and imagine the hours of conversation we're going to have as we communicate with colleagues about how we actually believe that what they believe may or may not be true. Now, one other thing, we've talked about some other FOMED resources. It's such a delight to see the explosion of FOMED over the last few years. And we're not precious at St. Emelins. There is so much online that we'd like to promote. One thing I'd just like to mention is a couple of blog posts by Michelle Johnson from Life in the Fast Lane. Uh, she writes beautifully. And it's the sort of thing that you just read with a coffee and you think that's just hit the nail on the head. She talks about how to be epic for those outside emergency medicine or who use different acronyms. That's an emergency physician in charge which is this sort of gatekeeping, management, moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic kind of a role that we have to do as senior doctors in emergency medicine. 
and also life in emergency medicine as general. They're, they're both from May and they were on life in the fast lane. Worth a read. And again, worth sharing with significant others who sometimes ask you what your day involves. So I would promote those. We're one big happy FOMED family and very happy to, to promote things that aren't just on St. Emlyn's. It's a good bunch of stuff out there. There was actually some stuff on Twitter, wasn't there? I think it may have come from Adrian Boyle in Cambridge about how to be epic. And it was a, it was the, the sensible side of the world and, and a list of how actually to run the day as the emergency physician in charge. I actually found it very helpful and it's definitely worth a read. And what Michelle has done in her post is taken that and then explained what the reality of doing that is. And I think those two things read together are brilliant. It's not satire what Michelle's done. She's not taking the mickey. It's just an experiential description. And it's brilliant because there's so much truth in what she says. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be epic. We should all be epic. Epic is great, but it's just funny. Read it. I agree. It's great. I think there is a conversation we need to have about what the future of emergency medicine looks like for senior doctors and nurses. More and more, I see myself and colleagues moving away from direct patient care. And I think this is something that will be a challenge for us over the years to come to keep our experience, to keep the excitement of seeing patients ourselves and actually being involved rather than just being somebody who is trying to move things through. The words flow and breached, I just can't. It's not something I ever thought I would have to think about. And that's something I think will become really important for us. And for me, it's about maintaining our education. It's about maintaining our interest because Actually, there's some things I have to do at work which don't require a medical degree and certainly don't require a fellowship of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. And I want to get back to being a doctor some days. Did you, did you see the bit that she said um, she, during the... She describes sneaking off to see an elderly patient because she really wanted to see a patient. Uh, so she sneaks off into a room to see this patient. She gets into a conversation with this patient about explaining why he's been there and all that kind of... Then she gets bleeped out by somebody to explain why the patient she's just seeing hasn't yet been seen yet. And just the craziness of that moment just chimed so much with me. I think it's brilliantly written. Highly recommended. So that's June, Simon. It's been a sunny month here in the UK. Hopefully we'll have some more sunshine over the summer. We'll be back with you with an update from July with some more blog posts. There's some on the site already. We'd encourage you to have a look at those. Keep enjoying your emergency medicine. At the heart of all this is being the best we can be. And I think that's the main message of how we can enjoy ourselves the most. Keep smiling. Well, soon August will be with us and there'll be a whole new group of people to inspire and to encourage that this is the best specialty. In fact, it's only the real, it's the only real medical specialty there is, isn't it? So let's keep our enthusiasm. Let's keep going as best we can. And from us at St. Emlyn's, take care. Just before you go, we've got a small favour to ask. Since 2012, we've funded the blog and the podcast and everything around it from our own funds. And it's been great. We've really enjoyed doing it. But the block and the podcast have grown and now we've got such bandwidth and such people contacting us from around the world and listening that it's actually starting to get quite expensive. So if you feel like you can contribute even a tiny amount, then just whiz onto the blog, look on there and you can make a small donation or even subscribe on a regular basis. Even a small amount of cash might make a big difference and help us keep St. Emlyn's free open access medical education. Thank you for your time.